Hi, Talia Lazarus here, and welcome back to I Got Back Up. Today I'm joined by Chris Overend. Chris was born with developmental dysplasia of the hips, and at age 24, a back spasm changed the course of his life. He learned that during puberty, his femoral artery had become pinched, leading to the deformation of his left hip and pelvis. Pursuing an incredible journey, from successful photographer to becoming a world-ranked wheelchair tennis player, Chris now races in national championships for Team Brit. Having raced in a McLaren and making history as part of the first all-disabled team to win. So, join me as we explore the life of Chris Overend and his path to motorsport glory. So I want to go back to the beginning with you. So where you think most resonates with who you are today, let's kind of start around there. So who I am today, I mean, I suppose um, I'm Chris. I race for Team <laughs> Brit. Um, I teach photography at a university now. Um, my early career was as a professional photographer and as an assistant photographer. <clears throat> so I used to uh, <clears throat> travel around Europe, do a lot of stuff in London. Uh, and I used to set up studio lighting, location lighting, used to be a camera operator. Um, and we used to shoot politicians, actors, actresses, musicians, all that sort of stuff. Um, and when I had my diagnosis and then my surgeries, uh, I had to basically give up that career for a couple of years. Um, and I found a new calling, I suppose, working at the university. Um, it's a lot less physically demanding and they're a lot more accommodating because it's the same building each day. It's a nine to five. It's, you know, it's fairly durable. Um, and I'm coming up to my 14th year, um, at the university and it was, I think it was 16 years now since I had my diagnosis and then the surgeries that I had that, that didn't work that we'll, we'll talk about in a bit, I suppose. Um, and I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. Um, Photography, I mean, photography is, uh, it's a great thing. And I'm sure you can still do it, you know, in some capacity, in some ways, no? Well, I, when, so when I was, when I was wheelchair bound, uh, so that was 16 years ago, I actually shot uh, an advertising campaign for a watch designer, um, which was a really unique challenge because I didn't have um, a particularly good wheelchair. I had an NHS wheelchair uh, and it was extremely heavy. Uh, you know, I've got a nice titanium wheelchair that I've got at the moment. And like, I had to travel all over London to go and meet these different people. Um, and obviously I figured out a way to, uh, get my wheelchair out the boot of the car. Um, so first getting to the boot of the car was the challenge in itself. And then how would I get from, uh, wherever I was going to do the photography and then how would I actually take the photographs, um, while being stuck in a wheelchair basically. And it was actually a really interesting challenge and I managed to get really, really good shots. In fact, we won an award for one of the portraits that I did, um, that then was syndicated with a magazine and went around Europe, which is really cool. Um, and you know, my inspiration for, for that was a photographer called Richard Avedon, who right up until, uh, before he died, he actually shot uh, an advertising campaign from a hospital bed. So I thought, kind of thought, well, if he can do a whole shoot from a hospital bed, I could definitely do it from a wheelchair. Um, and I suppose doing that uh, was like a reminder that uh, my brain is more important than my body uh, to live. Um, and I, I also did a, a car shoot. So when, when I was, I was pretty much immobilized. Um, I had some really good friends that were trying to get me through some tough times. And I 
had a shot of being a, a staff photographer for Evo magazine, um, which is a great magazine. I've been reading that for like 20 plus years. And we basically lifted me up, put me physically in the back of a Range Rover and then cable tied me into the Range Rover and then cable tied my tripod in front of me with my Hasselblad on front. And then we went around some country lanes down in Dorset, photographing a Porsche out the back of the car. And I got some really great shots from that as well. And again, it was just like a further reminder of actually, it, it doesn't matter what, what my body can and can't do. It's just about what my mind can do. Um, that was a, that was a really important couple of things I think that helped me get through a lot of, lot of my difficulties. I think that's uh that's a really incredible lesson to learn um for anybody is is the balance or of what your mind and your body can and can't do um and how powerful our minds really are our body kind of may show us one thing tell us one thing but our minds they're like a whole different wavelength i believe they can be very different um and our minds can do a lot more than we realize um, yeah 100 100 um i was uh, so going off on a tangent, just to make me think about the importance of the mind, but I was on um, a, a drug called buprenorphine, which is like a synthetic morphine. So I had a patch that I used to wear on my arm and I was on that for about six or seven years and I became quite addicted to it. Um, and it was great because I couldn't feel anything. Um, but at the same time, it was bad because I be essentially became an addict. Uh, so I started to get withdrawal symptoms, just like uh, someone, you know, like a heroin addict or something. And, uh, when I had my last surgery, which was, I don't know, probably six years ago, maybe longer ago than that, um, the post anesthetic care unit nurse, a woman called Wendy said to me, you know, how long have you been on these for? Um, have you heard of the pain clinic? And I was like, hey, what's the pain clinic? And she said, you know, when, when you go back home next to your GP, ask them about the pain clinic. So I did. And I got enrolled on it and it was, it was like Alcoholics Anonymous for people with chronic pain. And you go into a room, you know, with about six or seven other people and you're in there with a psychologist, uh, uh, a GP, uh, a nurse, a physiotherapist, and you basically go, hi, I'm Chris and I suffer with chronic pain. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, uh, and we, we practice mindfulness. So we practiced um how to uh acknowledge the pain in your body and then how to be able to to process it because it was really interesting because they taught we we learned about how the body processes pain and when you're in uh chronic pain what ends up happening is your body gets a signal that there is something wrong so it heightens the awareness of your body to pain so it makes your receptors that much more painful and then you feel pain again and then that pain is amplified and then you end up in this, you're stuck in this loop of feeling a lot of pain, basically. So what we were taught was how to um, kind of, you know, shake hands with it a little bit and acknowledge it. And it's when you were talking about the mind, that's, that's what came to my mind initially was that's how I've been able to come off of all of those drugs. Um, and I've mentally, I'm in, I'm in a much better state now because the, the, the more, you know, the buprenorphine was just doing horrible things to my mind, to be honest with you. Uh, cause I was, you know, cocodamol, that's also a, a really another not so good drug for your, your mind as well. Um, and I think now 
yes, I don't have a filter on anymore, so I can feel everything, which is which is not good. But at the same time, being able to feel everything, I've got a much better idea of um, how to um, how to control my symptoms a bit more, I suppose. So uh, I was chatting to someone a couple of weeks ago about this. Like for me, I can use my legs, but it's like getting on a bicycle machine. And when you first start going, you have it really light and it feels like every couple of minutes, someone just turns up the strength of the cycling machine until it gets to the point where it becomes impossible to do that anymore. Um, so I, I find that every day I've got like an internal fuel gauge and I'm like, okay, how much can I do today? Well, that's going to be a bit touch and go. And I know when I've done too much, cause I'm just in a right state. <laughs> um, so for me, a positive mental attitude, it's, it's, it's a really cheesy thing to say, but, um, it has a massive impact on how the body, you know, copes with stuff. We love a bit of cheese. <laughs> Everyone loves a bit of cheese That's every me. now and I'm then. I'm cheesy and I've got the cheesy <laughs> hair, you know. I like the hair. What is it, like platinum? Is it that platinum blonde? Uh, no, it's bleached. My wife oh, did okay. it. We did it, um, <laughs> we did it literally before the, uh, the last race weekend as, uh, as a bit of fun. Yeah. Well, I like it. I like it. It's uh it's a uh, it's nice. I like it. I think um well what we're going to do is obviously we're going to talk about, you know, racing and, you know, all of that. Um but one thing I did pick up on which you were just talking about is shaking hands with the pain and I know that it's something I've learned and I something that I still, you know, I'm learning about and I understand is I think any sort of pain whether it's physical, whether it's, you know, internal, emotional, Whatever it is, it's it was well, it's acceptance, yes, but it's it's being able to shake hands, you know, metaphorically speaking, yeah. with what it is that's, you know, that that you're suffering with, and if that's maybe something that's you know internal, or something that you're trying to cope with, something to do with your mental health, it's even even that it's it's shaking hands with the okay, this is going on. So if we can accept it, and you know, I can learn how to cope or live or understand it it just does it's like the first step it helps open that door into some sort of healing process yeah um, yeah so now i obviously do want to go back into uh, we were talking just before we hit record yeah. about you know your childhood and and where everything started so it is over to you well um accident, <laughs> accident prone chris um that that was me growing up um yeah, I mean, if I, I if I go back really, really young, I suppose I had a, a broken, I had a compound fracture of my uh, my radius when I was younger, but that had nothing to do with me being a clumsy sod. That was just an accident at school. Um, so I, I was I was saying to you when I was uh, about twelve years old, that's when my clumsiness started happening, um, and I was playing um, at school basically, and I, I tripped over. And I fell backwards onto both my wrists and I sh shattered my left wrist and I broke my right wrist, um, which freak accident it happens. But a year to the day later, um, I slipped over and I fell and I broke my left wrist again. And literally a year to the day later. Uh, so the school secretary had to phone my mum up and my mum was like, what? <laughs> what? What do you mean? <laughs> um, and then. Another year later, um, I was playing tennis and I rolled my ankle over and I fell onto my elbow 
and I broke my elbow, um, which let me tell you, breaking your elbow is unbelievably painful. I can't tell you how painful that was, actually. Um, and then a couple of years after that, uh, I ruptured my left ankle ligaments, all of them, which I was in a cast for a number of, I think I was in a cast for about five months, which is really funny because my mum can't remember it. She swears that it never happened. And I'm like, how can you not remember that? And I think it's because mum just, you know, was visiting me in hospital and taking me for different plaster casts to be cut off all the time. It just kind of all blurred into one. And to be fair, my mum's cracking on a bit now, so she probably just can't remember. Um, and um, I mean, I suppose if we go right back to the beginning, I was born with um, developmental dysplasia of the hips. So when I was a baby, um, they discovered that my legs, my feet were pointing like that, basically. Um, so it's, it's a fairly common thing uh, in babies. I think it's something like one in 30,000 babies that are born have it. And they essentially cut the tendons on the inside of your hips. And then they put the legs back in the right position. And then I was in a cast for about a year or something when I was a baby. I've got some horrendous photographs of me uh, crawling around, you know, pretty much immobilized apart from my hands. I think maybe that's why I've got quite good shoulders because I did a lot of that when I was when I was younger. Um, it was only uh, when I was in my early 20s, and this I sent, sent to you earlier, um, I used to love to ski, Tali. That was that was the my favorite thing that I've ever done. It's the thing I miss the most is is going onto the slopes. And I'd gone out with my godparents to uh, Avoriaz in France, and we were staying in this great chalet, and there was a masseuse there. And I'd never had a massage before and I'd always had a bad back. And I kind of said, I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to do it. I don't care if it's hundred euros. It's, it's going to be worth it. And it was, it was amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Um, but the following day we skied from uh, Avoriaz into Switzerland. So I don't know if you know Avoriaz and Morzine, but there's, there's three mountains that you can go up and at the bottom of the last one, you end up in a different country altogether. Um, and I chickened out going down the wall, which is this brutal ski run that takes people's lives. And actually, when I think about it now, crikey, I was bloody lucky I didn't do that because I'm pretty sure I would have hurt myself big time. Um, but we got to the bottom of that and I bent over to undo a ski boot and something popped in my back. And unbelievably, we had a chiropractor on holiday with us who then proceeded to give me emergency treatment on top of uh, a bench in an apres ski bar with about 100 people all around me. So there's like 20 year old me with like this 50 year old woman basically straddling me. It was quite a, quite a picture. Um, and then we tried to figure out how to get me back to um, back to back to the hotel, basically. And I think I think I stayed at this apres ski bar for about four or five hours, uh, basically lying down flat to try and see if it would get better. Uh, and we ended up nursing me back to the hotel and that was the last time I ever skied, you know, sat out the rest of the holiday. Um, and when I went back to the UK, um, Julie, her name was, she said, let me, let me put you in touch with my friend, she's a chiropractor there in Wimbledon. Um, I really want you to go and see them because, you know, you've definitely got some back problems. Um, so I did, I saw the chiropractor for six months, spent a fortune on appointments. Um, and then one day the chiropractor said to me, uh, I can't help you anymore. You know, I've tried resetting things for you and every week you come back and you're in the same position. I think there's something going on with your hips. So she said, 
go go to the orthopedic center and see this person. So dad and I went to um, uh, our hospital. We were referred to the elective orthopedic center in Epsom. And the surgeon uh, did a load of x-rays on me and said, right, come in, you better sit down. And he showed me uh, an x-ray of my hips. And what he reckoned had happened is during puberty, my uh, femoral artery had got pinched somewhat. So my left uh, left femur didn't develop fully. Um, and the uh, rather than it being a nice ball, it's more of a stump and it had grown, rotated 90 degrees. Um, but also on top of that, my sockets are really shallow. So instead of having like a nice normal socket, I've got these really, really ultra shallow sockets. Um, and he basically said to me, like, Chris, you need to be very, very careful now because, um, uh, you know, your hips are a ticking time bomb. Those are the words he said to me, basically. Uh, so he said right there and then no more impact sports, no running, no jumping. Um, you know, you just need to be very careful going forward. And like I said to you earlier, Talia, I, I totally ignored him and I carried on doing all of the things that I love to do. I didn't do skiing anymore. Um, but it didn't stop me going and playing racquetball. It didn't stop me uh, hitting a tennis racket. Um, I didn't run because I was never that big into running. I always used to find running quite a difficult thing to do. Um, but I still love playing basketball. So I'd go and shoot hoops with my mates every now and then. Um, and while this was going on, I was a freelance photographer. So I remember really vividly uh, one morning uh, walking to Norton Station in Kingston. And we were going to photograph Gordon Ramsay um, at, I can't remember what it was, some hotel or something. And I was quite excited about going. And I, I remember it. It was just like, it was an awful feeling. But I went to take a step and my hip just, I just, I felt it like almost pop out. Um, and I had to reset it in the street. Um, and because my hips are very shallow, it's not, you know, a normal, for a dislocation for, norm, for a normal person, that's a very traumatic thing because... The hip is so far in there but for me it was just like it just kind of slipped out and i felt it in, in my bottom basically and i was like oh that doesn't feel very well and i kind of pushed it back in and then i stood there in the street for about 10 minutes like frozen not knowing what to do or whether to take another step because i was like if i put my leg down is there going to be anything there and i had this real paranoia of like shit what's going on so i phoned up uh the photographer i was working for and told them what had happened because she knew about the diagnosis from six months before and she was like don't worry i can find someone else just you know go home so we we contacted the surgeon told them what happened and the surgeon was like i was hoping that wasn't going to happen for a while um but okay let's let's get you in and have a look at you um and the surgeon sat me down and said right we can't do a hip replacement on you you're too young um what we need to do is we're going to try something called a derotation osteotomy uh, and I was like, that sounds very um, <laughs> invasive. What's what's going on there? And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to break your femur. We're going to sever it completely. And we're going to rotate what hip you have got uh, back into the socket and see if we can buy you some time, basically. And um, I think the the last job I did as a freelance photographer was, it was 2017. And... Uh, I think it was January time and we went to 10 Downing Street. I couldn't tell anyone about this. So for three, for three months, I knew about this shoe. I had to be vetted by MI6. Couldn't tell my friends, couldn't tell my mum and dad where I was going. 
Um, and we went and photographed uh, Gordon Brown in his office at number 10, uh, which is a really cool experience. Um, and, you know, I've got a nice picture of me standing next to, have I got a nice picture? I don't think I have got a picture of me standing next to the big door. But let me tell you, that door is huge. You can't pick up what that door is. Um, and then literally a week later, I was sat in a hospital bed with a big fat arrow drawn on my left leg. Um, and then my life changed forever, to be honest with you, after that. Um, because they did the surgery. Um, it was it, it was a really brutal surgery to be honest with you i've got massive scars all up my left left side of my body from like my pelvis all the way down to my left knee um and the surgeon was like you know it went well and they got me up on my feet and i remember that first time of being on a zimmer frame and going to put my left leg down for the first time and just feeling that bolt of pain just go right up all the way through you know to my head um and realizing how serious this was um so yeah i mean you've you've been through the surgery process so you know what it's like when you you're in a hospital and then you you eventually go home and then you've got to do the exercises and i think things were going okay for the first three or four weeks until i had an accident at home and i didn't tell you about this earlier but um i went out into the garden because i wanted to get some fresh air because i'd literally been in my room for about a month because some friends had come to visit me and when we came back in, I wanted to take my shoes off because I was going to get back into bed. Now, I don't know why we did this, but I didn't sit down to take my shoes off. I decided to stand on my crutches while my friends tried to take my shoes off. And what happened was we took my left shoe off first. And then when we went to take my right shoe off, the, the shoe as it came off, it just caught my foot. And because it caught my foot, I suddenly had to put all the weight in my left leg. And of course I couldn't weight bear on it at all. And my left leg just did that. And I twisted my thigh around my knee. And of course I had a big titanium rod in and all sorts. And I really hurt my knee. And I didn't realize how badly I'd hurt my knee until I think it was six months later, I still couldn't weight bear on my left leg at all. My left leg was as skinny as my you know, as, as this part of my arm, I suppose. Um, and the surgeons were like, what's going on? And they then discovered that I'd completely torn my ACL, uh, in that little fall. And that was why I couldn't weight bear on my left leg because I couldn't put any pressure on my knee. And then because I couldn't put any pressure on my knee, um, the bone didn't stitch together. So I had a broken femur for that whole six month time. Um, so before that, they tried taking a screw out because there was a there was a big bone splinter sticking out from my femur, and they thought that that was what was causing the problem with my knee. No, it was the ACL. Um, so eventually, they said, "Okay, we're going to call this surgery a failure because your um, your leg hasn't healed. So we're going <clears> to <throat> we're going to do the whole procedure again, and we're going to do your ACL at the same time. So two for one. So I was like, great. So how long do I have to wait for that? Oh, don't know." six months later so we're now a year after the first surgery um so that's a year of being back at home with mum and dad after having moved out for a long time um a year of being stuck in bed um occasionally going out i lost about three or four stone from where i am now and i remember uh seeing a photograph of myself that a friend took and i 
literally didn't recognize myself. I literally looked like an 80 year old man. And it made me burst into tears because I was like, what the hell has happened to me? I literally looked like I was going to die. Um, and I had zero use of my left leg now. My left leg was just like this floppy thing. So you could pick it up and that was it. It was just a passenger to my body. Um, and we went into the operating theater. And when I came out, I looked down at my knee and I was like, wow, you guys have done an amazing job. I can't see any scars or anything on there. How have you done? Have you gone through keyhole through that? And they they said, no, we're really sorry. Um, when we did your osteotomy again, when we went to re-ream out the inside of your femur, we didn't have the right tool because the, obviously, because you had the, uh, the titanium rod in there that made the hole bigger. So we had to send a taxi to another hospital to get another tool. So I was basically completely open for about an hour on the operating theater while they waited for this tool to arrive and they just run out of time to be able to do my ACL. So great. Okay. So what does that mean? Cause I still can't wait there cause I can't put any weight on my left leg. Don't worry. We'll get you in to do your ACL. That was a six month wait Talia to get my ACL done. So we're now a year and a half in and I've only just, I only had just had my ACL uh, done at that point. And that was, I was like literally bottom of the bottom of the, uh, the curve of life, to be honest with you. Um, things were starting to get really difficult at home. Uh, my parents were getting really worried about me because obviously I looked really unhealthy. Um, my career prospects had completely dried up. I was getting phone calls from like dream clients. Tyler. I was getting phone calls from Condé Nast. Chris, we heard that you like skiing. Do you want to come out to Switzerland for a month? And photograph all of their ski resorts and i was like no i can't um i missed out on a trip to go into chernobyl to go and photograph uh, the nuclear reactor all around there and it was a really tough time and uh, i think at that point in my life um i did think that that was it i didn't want to live anymore and i had some you know some really bad thoughts about things and I I can't explain to you what happened one day, but I just had woke up one morning and decided that I didn't want to die. I didn't want this to be the end of my life. I wanted to, to live. I, I was like, I'm only like 25 years old. I've still got a lot to live for. Um, I saw at, uh, the car magazine that I've been reading for like the whole time that I was stuck in bed, that they were looking for a new star photographer. And I was like, I wonder if I could do that. I mean, I can, can't really walk, but you know, I can still take a photograph. I know what I'm doing. And, um, a couple of my mates, uh, that had rallied around me and, you know, came to visit me all the time. His dad had just bought a 997 turbo. Um, and when they were brand new and we, you know, going back to like, uh, sorry, did I say 2017? I meant 2007. Um, so this was like 2008. So the 997 Turbo was very brand new. It was like, you know, turn heads everywhere you went. And I'd never done any car photography before Talia. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to go and be a star photographer for a magazine shooting cars. And I've never done it before. I've done lots of photographs of objects, people and stuff like that. How hard can it be? Um, and this is all on film, don't forget. So, you know, we weren't, didn't have digital back then. It was just all on film. So... We, I got myself down to Dorset where the car was 
and his dad had a Range Rover and uh, like I literally had five people helping me do this. So they literally lifted me up uh, and like, like literally like a parcel, put me in the back of this Range Rover and then they cable tied me all down to all the tie down points in the Range Rover, then put my big tripod in and put the camera in. And then we went off to find some nice country lanes and we did some really cool photographs of um, this 997 Turbo. And I then did a few other still life stuff and sent it all off thinking, oh, there's no way I'm going to get an interview. And I got a bloody interview. And I was like, oh my God, how the hell am I going to do this? Like, I can't, I can't go in there on two crutches. Um, you know, they're never going to give me a job. And I remember driving up there being really excited. I had a Jag at this point, by the way, Talia. I'd bought a, I bought a V8 automatic Jag because I couldn't drive a manual anymore, but I figured out that, you know, I, I still use my right leg so I can just do throttle and brake with that. Um, you know, I spent ages polishing it. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to go out there and make a really good impression. Um, and I didn't get the job. Um, I, I chucked a load of painkillers down my throat. And it was, I think it was the very first time that I tried walking with one crutch because um, I didn't want to go there in two crutches. I was like, it's not a good look. Um, which in hindsight, who cares? I should have just done it. But I went in there and just tried to, you know, massively downplay how serious what I was going through was. Um, and I had a really nice chat with the editor and, you know, he liked my photography. And he asked me a few questions about some of the stuff I'd shot. And I think I just made a bit of a fool of myself, but here's what it is. But I think going through that process of um getting that job interview and then i said to you earlier as well i also shot an advertising campaign for a watch designer uh, and this was when i was wheelchair bound um i think doing those two things like made me realize that this isn't the end you know uh, i've got i've got a, i've got a mind i've got skills that i can use i don't need my lower half of my body to be able to survive you know i, I can i can carry on doing things um, and that was kind of a nice feeling because I'd always felt like an underdog growing up, that I was never good enough to do stuff. Um, and then a friend of a friend basically said, you know, uh, the university I work at is looking for someone to, uh, look after the photography studios and teach people how to use cameras and lighting safely. And I was like, Christ, education, what? I, I can't be a teacher. <laughs> like who would come and listen to me teach stuff. Um, but I was kind of like no, let's, let's give it a shot. And I threw everything into this. Like I spent ages like mentally preparing myself for the interview. And, um, I just, I, I, I had every base covered for, for the job interview basically. And I got it. Um, a funny thing happened Talia when I was in Southampton, I noticed that my neighbor had an Aston Martin and he had a copy of Evo magazine. And we lived in this fantastic beach house at the time. And we just got chatting to him one day uh, and then we went for a beer and then we met up again for another beer. And then one day he said, have you ever been to the 24 hour of Le Mans, Chris? I was like, no, but I've been trying to get my dad to go to Le Mans since I was like, I don't know, 10 years old when we were watching like the, the, the Rothmans Porsches go around the track and he never wanted to do it. So I was like, sign me up. Um, and then that basically started me going to Le Mans 10 years on the trot. Uh, so we, I think the first year we went was 2010 and then the last year we went was 2019. 
which is 10 years, but it doesn't work out that way. Do the maths. Um, and that's kind of where the, uh, the motorsport buzz started to come back for me a little bit. Uh, like I never, I'll never forget being near the circuit and hearing the cars going around the track for the first time. Because back in 2010, Talia, there were V10s, there were V12s, there were V8s, there were V6s, there were turbocharged, naturally aspirated, supercharged cars. And it was like this orchestra of noise going around and it gave me such a buzz and it was really difficult <laughs> getting around Le Mans, let me tell you, but um, where we were staying was a, a, a campsite inside Tetra Rouge and inside Tetra Rouge, uh, I think it was, I don't know, I think I'd say it was probably about 60 meters from where my camp, where my tent was to where the, the track side was. And it was just, I couldn't tell you how perfect it was because I couldn't walk very far, but I didn't need to, because I could just go over to the camp, uh, campsite, back to the track and vice versa. And yeah, that, that was th those three things. I think Talia, like, um, getting the job interview, um, then getting the job and then doing Le Mans, I think were three really important things that saved my life because. I've picked up a new social circle of people that were into motorsport that I'd never been able to do before. Um, I felt like I had purpose in life again, because I realized that the, the stuff that I'd done in photography was actually quite extensive. And I've been able to share a lot of experience with a lot of young people. And I think it was, I think it was what about four years ago. No, no, it was longer than ago. That was five years ago um, that I discovered wheelchair tennis. It turned out that the person that was running it was uh, one of their Team GB uh, coaches. And he said to me, how interested are you in pursuing this further? Like, would you like to do it competitively? And I'm like, I've literally just started this after not playing tennis <laughs> for 10 years. I don't own a tennis wheelchair. What the hell do you mean? Um, and like literally two days later, I got uh, an email from Team GB saying, do you want to join the wheelchair uh, development squad for a year? Um, here's a place where you can get a wheelchair. Um, we look forward to seeing you in January. And I was like, Christ. Um, so I, I, uh, I had some money saved up. Um, I went to, uh, a charity trust called the Dan Maskell trust and they help, uh, people get, uh, tennis wheelchairs and get you into tennis. Um, and I went and did this development year and I, I competed in lots of national tournaments. I lost every single one of them. Um, but I had a fantastic time doing it and I met a lot of other people, um, that have gone through similar life stories. Um, you know, I, I met a lot of people that made me realize how lucky I am. Um, because I've, you know, paralysis is such a, a difficult thing to, to overcome. Um, and yeah, I just, I felt really humble doing the whole thing. It was, it was such a good thing. And the wheelchair tennis community as well is such a lovely group of people. Um, it was just, it was just always a good laugh. Um, but the following year I was like, I'm not going to lose anymore. And I didn't, uh, every tournament I entered, um, I either got to the final of the doubles or we won the final. So I came back with a lot of trophies in the second year of competing. And at the end, at the end of that second year of competing, we went to the national finals up in Shrewsbury and we came away with the national final, uh, the national championship win in doubles. Um, and we managed to beat one of the top 10, uh, players in the UK in the doubles, which was amazing. And I finally got to go home and give my mum and dad 
a national trophy to go alongside <laughs> their national trophies. Uh, and that was a really, really awesome thing. And I think I trained really hard after that year. Cause I was like, maybe I can go up into ITF. Um, cause I'd done a few ITFs, but I didn't do very well. And I was, I was determined that I was going to make my world ranking better. And I was going to really make this a, a professional career. And I came back at the start of that season, like unbelievably fit, like really lean, really like focused to, to do well. And we got to the final of our first tournament and we bloody lost. We lost to the people that we beat in the national championship. <laughs> so it was obviously a bit of revenge on their half. Um, and then three weeks later, COVID happened. This is such a long story, but this is how I got into team Brit. Um, cause I, I wanted to have a go at sim racing cause I hadn't done that for 10 years, 12 years or something. And I, I said to my wife, I was like, can I, can I spend a bit of money and get a simulator? <laughs> and it was literally just like, um, a steering wheel and some pedals. And, um, I got it and it was great. But I start, I, I like, I really struggled. Like I could do the throttle, no problem. But when it came to the braking, I was getting a huge amount of pain uh, in my hips trying to brake. So I had hand controls in my car at the time. So I had like a, a Jeff Gosling push pull. And I started to go onto the internet to go, you know, is there such a thing as hand controls for sim racing? You know, is, is there adaptions that you can get for it? And just through sheer coincidence, I saw on a Google image search, a picture of my sim racing wheel with hand controls and it said team Brit on the front of it. And I remember going to the website and looking at the hand controls to have for the Aston Martin, just being kind of blown away that this Aston Martin literally being driven with just, you know, these things. Um, so I've, I've phoned them up, you know, I'm, I'm not really that shy a person anymore. So I, you know, typing an email and going, oh, I'm interested. I just phoned up the workshop and ended up speaking to Al, the lead engineer of Team Brit, and told him uh, what I wanted. And he was like, come on down. And this was, do you remember that first summer lock, uh, after lockdown when we were actually allowed out? And we can yeah. go places like a few months, <laughs> like a few months. Well, the first thing I did was I went to team Brett, uh, and I was like, you don't have to ask me twice to come to a race team and go into a garage. Like amazing. Um, and I went in there and the Aston Martin was up on the, up on its ramps, wheels all off. And you know, there was that amazing smell that you have, uh, in a proper race garage of like the oils, the fuel, the tires, and it just it just made my senses go overload basically and al chucked me on the hand control simulator they've got in the workshop and he said right let's have a look at your wheel and i think he left me on the simulator for over an hour uh and i had them on on and i was just really enjoying it to be honest with you um and at the end of the conversation with al al handed me my steering wheel back and said that's not going to work. Here's what you need to buy. And he gave me a shopping list of about 600 quid's worth of stuff. And, you know, I'd already spent like a huge amount of money <laughs> on, on sim racing gear, and I didn't really think I'd be able to get it past home basically. And, you know, uh, I got back into my car and thought, Oh Christ. Okay. I think about it. You know, I'll think about it. I do want to get sim racing, but I don't know if I can afford to do this right now. And, Literally, I kid you not, as a flyaway comment at the end of it, Al said, we're going to start up our academy next year. If you fancy having a go at driving a car for real with hand controls, 
um we might have some spaces if you're interested and we i went home i tell you i kid you not i went home we then went into another lockdown and at the end of it i think it was like march or april time email inbox team brit you know i was starting up the academy days again and i was like yes yes and yeah the the the, the typical turn around to my wife and said can i can i book a track day <laughs> it's not cheap but i really want to go and drive race cars and um so i did and then it was the weirdest thing tyler because like i i filled out the form sent it off and then about 20 minutes later in my email inbox uh was a, a phone number uh can you call me please <clears throat> and it was dave player the founder of team brett and i phoned him up um I was on the phone to him for like nearly two hours, Talia. And he he had looked me up. He'd seen the stuff I'd been doing, Murta Tennis. And at the end of that phone call, I, it was basically, okay, you're not coming to do a driving experience now. You're coming to be assessed. We're going to assess you to see if you've got any potential to, to do this further. And if you do, you know, have you thought about doing racing driving? And I was like, no but sign me up you know that's like childhood dreams come true um and then yeah it was unreal like like two months later i'm sat in a volkswagen polo at donnington with jamie falvey um and he's throwing me around the track and i'm thinking there's no way i'm going to be able to do this um and then i think we did two or three other i think no, we did one other um day in the polo and then the team invited me down to the workshop to drive the 118 uh, around the Top Gear track. And that was like another bucket list thing ticked off there. Driven a race car around the Top Gear track, which is, do you hear that's going to get knocked down, by the way? I didn't hear that, no. I still oh. love Top Gear. <laughs> oh, mate, no, me too, me too, the original one. Um, and then at the end of that, they said, you know, do you want to do you want to be a rookie for Team Brett? Um and then, yeah, October, I was in a race car doing my first race at Donington Malouk. And we came third, got on the podium in our first race, which is amazing. Um, yeah, it's been such a wild ride. Like, I could literally carry on talking for like another <laughs> hour um, about, like, last year in the 240 and the McLaren this year. But I'm not going to because I've talked for too long. <laughs> you haven't spoken for too long. Don't be silly. What is so... Um... What is so fascinating about your entire story from start to end, well, it, you know, where we are now at least, one thing that I kept thinking about every time you spoke about something different was that obviously we don't know what tomorrow brings, you know, whether it's good, whether it's bad, we don't know what tomorrow brings. And I think a lot of people think that they kind of, they know the next page of their life. They know the next chapter. They just know what's going to happen, but they, they don't, you don't. No. And the point of this is your story shows that, you know, you were at one place in your life, you know, once upon a time. And had you have sat down maybe and said to you, you know, back then, this is what you're going to do. These are things you're going to, you know, you're going to be in Team Brett. You're going to drive, you know, race cars. You're going to do all these different things. I don't know. You might have said, okay, yeah. Or you might have gone, nah, no. You know, it's, it's, no. it's very different. But my point is, is your story shows that, you don't know what tomorrow brings. And that can be the most amazing thing can just show up the next day. 
without you having any idea. One Google search, one, you know, one little thing leads you on to something else, which can end up being the most amazing journey. And that's all I could think about every time you were saying something different. And I was like, well, you know, when he did this, he then did that. And then he did this and then he did that. And I think that's what's, that's what's motivating, you know, you don't know what tomorrow brings and that's actually very exciting. Yeah, I, I, yeah, totally agree with you. I mean, my, my life outlook changed so much, uh, in the last 10 years. Um, I, I, as a person have changed a huge amount, I think before the surgeries and before, um, everything I went through, um, I'm a lot more open-minded to things now. Like, do you want to do this? Yes. It's pretty much. That's pretty much me now, you know, there's an avenue to try something new. I'll try it. Um, which is very unlike me from when I was younger. Cause when I was younger, I was like, no, 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 you know, this is, this is what I want to do. You know, I had a, I had a plan in my head for what I wanted to do in life. And <clears throat> I think I, <clears throat> it's not so much that I was forced to, to adapt like I was, <laughs> um, but it was, it was more of a choice to adapt. Uh, if that makes sense. Um, cause then it, it felt like it was me deciding to do it rather than, you know, being pushed down into it. Well, you were open to opportunities and, you know, you were open to finding different things and, you know, following your dreams in a way. Um, and then with regard to team Brett, uh, you know, how, how is it being in team Brett? It's really cool. I mean, <laughs> like to get to, to, to go and, um, race cars on amazing tracks around the UK. Uh, I haven't done any European circuits yet, but, uh, I get strapped into the car. Uh, I'm immobilized from, from, you know, from my hips down. Um, you know, my feet are tucked behind the pedals cause I've got very long legs, unfortunately. Um, and when I get in the car, I'm not in any pain. I don't think about anything. My back doesn't hurt. All I think about is the braking zone, uh, the apex and my mirrors to see if there's anything coming up my inside. And then also looking at my Delta to go, I'm still not as fast as my teammate. Um, and it's such a liberating feeling, uh, when you're in the car, uh, cause it's a really cool thing to get to do. Like every time I get in the car, I still have a little pinch me moment of like, this is so cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is so cool. Um, yeah, it was just, um, it, it's been a very privileged thing to get to do. Um, and I'm enormously grateful that I get to do it. And it's finding those kind of moments in life that you can look back on and you can feel exactly the same way and you can just smile about. And yeah. th th those are, those are kind of things that are priceless. And, and if you can hold on to them because they just, I think they also motiv motivate you because you're like, wow, if I can feel like this, like what else can I feel? You know, how can I feel this kind of feeling again when I'm doing something? And with all of that in mind, I wanted to ask you then, when we're talking about things like that, what advice would you give to somebody that you said earlier, you know, you were being offered these dream jobs in photography at the time um, and you had to say no. So what would you say to somebody that, was in is is or was in that position where you know their dreams are, are you know might be landing literally in their lap but for whatever reasons they cannot do it because it happens but they can't do it what would you say because i can imagine that's a pretty 
tough experience. Yeah, it is, it is a really tough experience. Um, crikey, what would I say? That's a really tough question, Talia, because I think we're all in different situations. Um, I don't think there can be an answer that you could give that would that would that would basically answer everyone's question because we're all in in a different life situation. Um, I think I was I was living at home. Um, I, the, the motivation for me at the time was I was seeing the impact that I was having on my family and on my parents. Um, and I suppose I looked and get cheesy here, but I, like I looked into myself and thought, well, what are the things that I know I can do um, that don't need the parts of me that I can't use? And is there anything that I can I can do with that? Basically, um, I could I could be, I could be really cheesy and, and say the, the the standard motivational stuff of you know never give up that sort of jazz, but I can't really say that to people because. It's, it is very easy to, to feel defeated, um, but you've, you've just got to look in yourself. You've got to look in yourself and go, what, what things uh, can I do? What things uh, do I enjoy doing? I think the things that you enjoy doing are the things that you'll naturally do the best job at doing. Um, so for me, I, I really enjoyed photography um, and I never anticipated that I'd be where I am teaching it. And in hindsight, it was a really great decision because of actually what's happened to the photography industry but that's that's a that's a different conversation altogether um yeah i'm not very good at answering that question i'm really sorry no don't be silly i think it's interesting though because from what you were saying and it is i mean everyone's story is so different that it really is and everyone's situations are different everyone's dreams are different every you know it it's different but it's kind of a case of you're right, looking into yourself, looking into who you are, you know, when this opportunity shows up and you might not be able to do it, it is looking into yourself and looking into, okay, but what can I do? What am I good at? What, 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 okay, this is here. I might have to let this one go. But then again, I know I've said this a few times, but it kind of, and I think with your story, it's like, okay, I've, I have to let this go, but then, almost when you sometimes let what you think you know or what you think the plan is or what you think the dream is go, something else kind of swoops in. And it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. It doesn't take a week, a month. It can take a very, very, very long time. I, I, but... Absolutely. Like, I think you've got to be open to stuff. Mm. Like, you, you can't be kind of like, no, I, I only want to do this and that. Mm. I think, yeah. It's, it's being lucky, but I, I don't necessarily believe in like, I, I, I feel like you make your own luck. Um, you need to, you need to have that, that outlook of there is something out there and you've just got to be perceptive enough to be able to see the opportunity. Cause I think that vision is really important because if you can't see it, something will just basically go past you like that and you won't be looking at it at all and you'll miss that boat uh to be able to you know do something yeah no i agree i do um is there anything else then that you want to talk about today oh um uh i love my mum and dad i love my wife um <laughs> i miss my nan and my nan and grandma 
Uh, they were lovely. They helped me get through a lot of things, speak to them a lot on the phone. Um, um, my wife's been amazing. Um, you know, we've been together for 12 years now. She's, uh, everything like I wouldn't be able to live without her. Um, and my mum and dad also got me through some really tough times and so did my best friends as well. Um, you know, I think I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those group of people. And, and, and my in-laws as well, like my, uh, my wife's parents as well. They've been amazing, really, really super supportive. They're always uh, coming to the races. They're always bigging me up and stuff like that. And I, I get really embarrassed about it. Um, but yeah, uh, and and the the doctors and the nurses as well that have got me through so many, you know, and the physiotherapists that I've seen. Um, you know, I was really unlucky with the fall I had that meant the surgery didn't work. Um, and, you know, I've had people talk to me before and go, isn't it medical negligence about stuff like this? And I was like, no, it was just really bad luck. And um, I've had to live with the consequences of, of a bad decision on basically taking a shoe off standing up. You know, when you think about it, that's that's what, what this all boils down to is I should have sat down when I took my shoe off. Uh, maybe I would have healed and maybe I wouldn't have had this, but then I wouldn't have then had this life journey that I've had for the last 12 years. I wouldn't have done the world tennis. I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't be teaching, you know, so, um, it was a different, different river in the stream of my life that I took. Um, and I'm, I'm along for the ride now and I'm in, you know, it is what it is. Um, I suppose, uh, I'm going to have surgery. This is something I suppose I could tell you. So, um, I've been offered potentially life-changing surgery, um, which be a total hip replacement on both sides. So they'll make my left leg two inches longer and they're going to completely get rid of the sockets, completely get rid of the balls and, and it might level me out because I've, I've developed scoliosis because of the, um, the hip imbalance. Um, so I have problems with my neck, problems with my back, problems with my knees. Everything's got a problem with it. Um, and that, that could happen in the next couple of years. Um, but it's quite, a, quite an extreme surgery. And earlier when we were talking and you were mentioning about that fear of putting a leg down to walk, I can't tell you how much, like I felt you when you said that. So I was like, I know exactly what that feeling is like. And, uh, yeah, like the thought of going into hospital and they're going to basically do both hips at the same time over a six week period. Um, and they said it's about a six month to a year recovery. So should I have that in the next couple of years that will curtail my racing for a year, at least I'd imagine. Um, and I'm, uh, I'll be honest with you. I'm really nervous about the thought of going through all of that again. Um, cause I've. I'm at a point now in my life where I've got control over my symptoms. You know, I can use a wheelchair when it's bad and when it's not bad, I can use my walking stick. Um, and it's quite nice feeling like I'm in control of my life again. And I'm very anxious about going back into a, a like a, you know, a whole new ball game of, of, you know, of, of disability again, of not being able to use my legs potentially for a number of, number of months and what that recovery process might look like but i think i've been in i've i've had this pain now for so many years and it's given me so many issues that um i'd be a fool not to take that risk um and see if i can 
get back to being able to use my legs again properly. Um, like, I think it's one of the things that holds me back as a racing driver, but also helps me as an endurance racing driver as I plan for the worst. Um, because anything less than the worst is just a bonus. So, um, I think it holds me back because it stops me being as fast as I probably could be as a, as a racing driver, but as an endurance racer, I think it really helps me because, um, I, I try to be consistent. I try to bring the car back in one piece, um, which I know the engineers and the mechanics are quite happy with me bringing back the car in one piece. Um, yeah, I'm sure they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think, yeah. But I think in some way, if any way, just it's, I know it's so much easier said than done, but you know, and I know a lot of people do prepare for the worst, but I think trying to hold on to some sort of positivity and hope that, you know, it, it, it will all work out. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm a very positive person. I'm plagued with, um, with, I think the normal negativity thoughts that we all get in our minds that they yeah. creep in from time to time. Uh, yeah. but overall, I've always tried to stay as positive as I can about everything in life. Um, cause it's really got one crack at it. Right. Mm -hmm. exactly 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 well it's been a pleasure to speak to you yeah. i'm looking forward to i'm seeing looking forward to seeing you down at a track <laughs> yeah you too talia it's been really lovely chatting with you and uh you know really nice uh chatting with you at goodwood as well um and thanks for having me on the podcast my pleasure my pleasure as we wrap up today's episode we are reminded that life can throw unexpected challenges our way taking our dreams and our ambitions but Chris's story teaches us that when circumstances beyond our control alter our path, it's not the end of the story. It's a chance to look within, find our hidden strengths and create our own opportunities. It's realizing that our dreams can still become a reality because it's not about what happens to you. It's about how you choose to move forward. So this week, keep pushing and keep making your own luck because the possibilities are endless. Your story is still being written. Stay tuned for more incredible stories and thank you for joining us. Until next time, keep believing in yourself and remember that you have the power to get back up.